Hello, Dr. Beckman, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. We're really excited to have you too, and it's been a long time coming. So thank you for taking time out of your really busy schedule, and and uh, and, and thank you for uh, taking time away from your family so that you can share all of the wonderful experiences that you're going to be able to share with our folks. So why don't you first share with our community where you live and what the name of your practice is? Sure. I am in a part of Los Angeles up in Malibu Canyon called Montanito, very tiny little area, but close to Malibu. And uh, my practice is, is Dr. Ashley Beckman. Okay. And so talk to us a little bit about your practice. Talk, uh, give us some background. Well, actually, let me, let me rephrase it. So give us a little information about your background, um, your, you know, where you grew up, uh, what kinds of dreams and goals you had, and how that led you on your educational path. Oh, sure. So I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, but then I moved to Los Angeles with my mom in uh, when I was about 12. And I guess I would say what kind of started me on this journey is in high school, we were very, I was very interested in nutrition and food and herbs and things like that. And again, being a little bit more of a holistic lifestyle, I was exposed to that more in California than I was in Texas at the I time. I would think so. Yeah. Um, but that really showed up more in the area of food and nutrition. So I went to, let's see, I ended up going back to college and studying undergrad business at UT Austin, because I always knew I would have some sort of business on my own, but I was interested somewhat in natural health. And oh, So you went, you went, you went, sort of did the reverse commute. You moved from Texas to yeah. California, and then you went back to Texas for your education? It happened to be just an, such an amazing business school. So, and I want, kind of wanted a big, fun school and it fit all the kind of criteria. All so right. yeah, I did go back for college and it was lots of fun. And then I came right back to California. Okay. After. But yeah, when I came back, I started just becoming a little bit more exposed to different healing modalities, such as homeopathic medicine, um, I also was someone who was very sensitive to perfumes and scents and any sort of chemicals and things. They started to bother me and I would get really bad headaches, which ended up turning into migraines later on. But so I kind of was just wondering what made me different, right? Because none of my friends were bothered by perfume. Everybody wore perfume. Same people, you know, this was a while ago. People smoked cigarettes. It always really bothered me and other people were fine, right? So I just felt I was different and I kind of wanted to figure out why. All right. So um, how did that take you on the path to becoming a healer from this business professional foundation? You now, you now move into the healing uh, arena. So talk to us about that part of your journey. Sure. Well, I would say anyone that's a doctor or healer will own their own business, right? So again, I always knew having a, some sort of business background and I was very interested in marketing. Um, and so that was part of what I studied. So I knew that I would utilize that no matter what, but then I also had this other aspect inside of myself that was very interested in helping people heal from whatever ailments they had uh, naturally. So I did start to pursue that. All right, so let, let's let's build out the, the business background because I'll tell you, I wish I had your insight. I wish I had a business background before I went to law school because 
If I did, I would have had fewer struggles when I left, you know, the, the city firm and ultimately came out here and opened up my own practice because I didn't have that foundation because I didn't have that foundation. I wasn't able to serve at the level I really would have liked to have served because I struggled so much as a business person. Right. Uh, but talk to us about why you think serving serving the community is best in the for-profit model, right? Because we hear a lot of people criticizing the for-profit model, but as it turns out, it is actually the, the place where you can you can serve at the highest level, at least in my belief. And I'd like to get your perspective on that. Sure. So I I grew up most most people in my family, both my parents were entrepreneurs, and same with grandparents and things like that. So I had a different, I guess, background and just uh, history of what I'd seen. And so I was used to being around people that had their own business, that makes sense. And so I guess I would say, you know, one thing that is very interesting, and it's this issue that I think a lot of practitioners have, is that we do wish that we could make everything free and available to everyone, because so many people are in great need for it. And then I have also myself, you know, given supplements, labs, protocols, all kinds of things to people. And a lot of times they don't do it, right? If they're not always invested in it. Um, I know there are some people that do and 100% that is really great, but it is more unique, right? I have probably given away so many things and then you come and it's unopened, never taken. Um, you know, they, there is a little you know, there is some sort of connection. I do think that the person needs to be invested in what they are doing. So, so Dr. Beckman, I'd, I'd like to give you my perspective on, on that piece, right? And, and the first, the first uh, thing that I've learned is that people who pay, pay attention, right? When, when you pay, you value it. When you value it, you're more likely to use it. When you use it, you'll get a, you'll get a positive outcome from it. But there's another piece of entrepreneurship. And another piece of entrepreneurship is there is a direct signal between the people you're serving and you who's ultimately trying to serve them. Meaning if you're not providing a valuable service to someone, they're not gonna pay for it and they're not gonna refer other people to it and your business is not gonna succeed. Right. Whereas when you are doing really good work, more and more people are gonna to come to you. You're gonna be giving more value. They're going to be then giving you the direct signal that you are serving the community the way the community needs to be served. So you have that direct link of communication. Whereas in the not-for-profit model, which by the way, I've spent many years in uh, myself, there's not a direct link between the people who are being served and the people who are providing the service because the people who are providing the service have to get donors who are not necessarily the people who are receiving the benefit from the service. So give me your perspective on those two observations. Yeah, no, it's, it is, and it is tricky, right? It's, it, and again, I, like I said, I, I feel this pull myself, right? Where Again, I think there's also a difference to a lot of us that are practitioners, if we're sole proprietors, right? We're not a big company who has extra funding and things like that in order to serve more people because we have a lot more coming in and we have people that can donate time and their expertise and things like that. And so I think it it's a bit tricky and that's where we have to try to find these other ways to give education and resources that are free, right? And again, through podcasts, books, um, you know, I do Instagram reels, whatever it might be, but we have the people, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of services are very costly, but a lot of the time, most of the people that are so sick, it takes very individualized care and it doesn't really work with a lot of these 
um, cookie cutter treatments, right? It's just unfortunately, but that's, we're so unique that we do need these specific protocols. But then at the same time, of course, there are steps that people can take that really set the foundation and really can help them. But you know, what's very interesting is, again, I work on this a lot with people because people want to know, well, what is it? Can you, what can I buy and take? What can I do? You know, and a, it's very complicated, but B, most people still don't do the basics that are free, right? This is not always a super sick, chronically ill community, but going to bed early, drinking enough water, getting sunshine, uh, moving your body if you can, right? Even if you, if it's very uh, minimal, but a lot of the things that actually are free and available to everybody, those are not like just solid in people's routines. And I would say to giving up sugar, you know, that's yeah, well, a lot yeah. of these vices people have, like they do not want to let go and they actually are super impactful and more impactful than any herb that they could take. All right. So let's pause that for a second because I do want to get into this with you in more detail. Uh, but you, you did, you did anticipate um, another area that I wanted to de develop with you which is um, which is why it is so expensive to get individualized care when you have Lyme disease, right? Um, and one of the arguments that we've made on many occasions um, with doctors and patients that we've interviewed is that the reason it's so expensive is not because we have money-grubbing entrepreneurs or money-grubbing doctors in the system. The reason it's so expensive is because we do not have a public health system that is designed to treat people who have chronic illnesses. We have a we have a system, and especially our insurance system, that is designed only to treat people who are acutely ill. And when you're acutely ill, it's a pretty good system. But when you're chronically ill, it's a really bad system. And it's not just our system here in the U.S. because we've interviewed people from around the globe. We've interviewed people who are, who are who are. Uh, steeped in the you know socialized medicine system, whether it be in the UK or in Scandinavia or in Israel. Uh, and by the way, Israel is the premier socialized medicine system. But we found with every one of the people we've interviewed who live in a in a socialized medicine country, they've had to step out of that system because it's an acute care system for them as well. So why don't we talk a little bit about that, Dr. Beckman? How how um, you, the reason you have to have a private pay system with the chronically ill patients that you're treating is because the traditional medical system and the insurance system is designed only to treat people who are acutely ill as opposed to the, you know, the overwhelming number of, of patients that you treat who are chronically ill. Sure. And I mean, first of all, it's hard enough to even get a diagnosis or actually even get a doctor to run a panel. And again, that's not even talking about how flawed the testing is in itself, right? Unfortunately, the really great and most effective testing and most reliable testing is through the private, you know, cash paid companies. So not even the labs that are being used in the insurance system are you know, sufficient or good. If you are positive on those, then you are very sick usually at that point, right? But then you have this whole grouping of people that they, those tests are just, again, not very reliable. And these people do have Lyme and co-infections and they go undiagnosed for many years, if not decade or more. That's if you even get a doctor who will run it, right? Most of them won't. And so unfortunately, I think too, there's not 
and there aren't enough, uh, you know, line literate doctors and things like that, even in the system that people come across, because there are so many fallacies that are still just, you know, out there constantly, like, again, most people, they always say over and over, Lyme is not in California. It's ridiculous, right? 100%. It's out here, has been out here, plenty of people out in California and Malibu have, there's a lot of Lyme here, right? We've interviewed scores and scores of people, um, you know, from California, yeah. Uh, who have Lyme disease, right? And and we and we hear that same story over and over and over again. But can can you build out for us again a little bit more, not just the testing elements of the of of the challenge, but yeah. also the challenge with people who are chronically ill, um, who have to work within a system where a doctor has fifteen minutes to treat you because that's what the insurance system, uh, that's what all the insurance system allows them to to to. Um, to, to have and how that is never going to be an adequate amount of time to treat somebody who has a chronic illness, whether it be Lyme disease or any other chronic illness. Right. No. And with that too, because unfortunately, as anybody knows that has a chronic illness, it's not just one thing. Like there isn't, someone doesn't just have Lyme, even within Lyme, there's multiple co-infections as well. But most people also have higher amount of viral load of you know, Epstein-Barr or a lot of other things. And, and so there is no way to treat and even go over that in a 15 minute conversation with a patient. So okay. it's definitely not set up for that. And then again, the education just even on, on Lyme disease and other vector-borne illnesses and things like that, it, they're not trained in it, right? And I think, unfortunately, there's so few doctors that are that, I'm sure that they would be overwhelmed too. But again, even getting into these specialists doesn't also mean, I mean, this is, goes into different treatment protocols and things like that. But a lot of the traditional protocols are, you know, very damaging to the body. And again, are not always resulting in the client feeling really well and recovered, right? It's, that's not, and that might be part of, that's part of the system as well, right? It, this is not, to you know, make people feel that their symptoms have gone away or dissipated or they've gone into remission. You're making me very excited, but I still want to hold off on, on getting too deep into this because I, I do want to build out your educational background. So build out for our community what your educational path was before you became a practitioner. Uh, before I became a practitioner? Yes. So I, um, well, so yeah, so I graduated from University of Texas at Austin, business uh, and marketing major. And then, but pretty soon after that, I went, I did go to grad school for acupuncture. And so grad school was four years full time. And then I went back and I got an additional two years. I also studied and mentored with a couple of different practitioners. One was a homeopathic doctor and another was a naturopath who also a lot of people specialize in Lyme, especially even in California back then, this was 20 years ago. So I just kept, you know, again, I was very interested in more of like the food and herbal aspect. And then I, I did think that you can do most things with foods and herbs. And then I ended up working in a functional medicine practice here in Beverly Hills with a big well-known doctor. And again, it was really enlightening to see a more traditional medical practice because, you know, I just wasn't exposed to that. I was very exposed to only herbs and food and 
you can treat everything that way. And so this was a, a wonderful mixture too. So um, how, did, how did that path ultimately lead you to um, developing your own practice? And why did you leave the, you know, the environment where you were working with another practitioner to open up your, or, or other practitioners and to ultimately open up your own practice? So in that practice, I saw 25 to 30 people a day. So I saw over 50,000 people in the eight years I was in practice there. And I would say I was quite burned out. And it also just was not what I envisioned my path was to helping people get better, right? This was a practice that also, you know, we had people who were on antibiotics and uh, antidepressants. It was a very traditional practice, even though it was functional based. And we did a lot of chelation, IV, you know, just mystery things, but again, a very interwoven between Western and Eastern practices. So I was more on that Eastern side that provided that and the nutrition. And again, this was in an office, really busy, you know, just in and out. People were in and out. Even at that point, that was a 15 minute visit for people to see the doctor, which was, you know, very unique at the time too. That was actually, that's very long. <laughs> so um, not, you know, again, this was, a, it was just a very fast paced office, primary care. And I became aware of the fact that there, that you could have a virtual practice, right? And so this was actually something that I really intended and had wanted to do. Again, as an acupuncturist, I transitioned out of seeing people in person, but my passion has always been environmental toxins, uh, mold, mold exposure. I had a lot of experience with Lyme patients and then yeah, I just, I really wanted actually to focus that on that entirely. And I had written my thesis on epigenetics. So what I like to do was also see what things you could potentially have some issues with, combining that with how you detox, right? And so you have some possible issues in the future. And so combining that with functional medicine labs, um, and then Chinese theory with how we detox with your genetics is kind of my trifecta of what I work on with people. This is so exciting. All right. So now um, talk to us about what life was like as now a practitioner uh, in your own uh, in your own business and how that allowed you to serve in ways that you weren't able to serve when you were in the mill. Sure. So I did actually move into a house about that time when I um, went on my own, actually a year later, I'll say, that ended up being filled with mold. So I did get actually very sick when I, after I opened my practice, I felt, um, you know, a lot of brain fog, a lot of fatigue, migraines. I have a lot, I had a lot of joint pain and these were symptoms that I'd had about 15 years prior and I thought had kind of resolved, but apparently not. It did turn out that it was Lyme. So what I did was I, I needed to investigate and kind of treat myself as I would my own patients. So I ran a bunch of my uh, mold toxicity labs. And then once those were very high, I also ran the Lyme labs that I use. And so then it, it was not, I didn't have as much energy as I had expected, right? Even though I was really excited for my new path. 
I just thought, oh, this should be very easy to transition from a very busy in-office practice to all online. But actually speaking with somebody, you know, for 30, 45 or 60 minutes online, very concentrated and uh, connected is quite draining too. So I just also, I thought that maybe that's why I wasn't feeling as good as because I, you know, I was used to being in a busy practice up and down hundred times a day or more to just in an office. Just turns out my office had quite a bit of mold in it. <laughs> so, right. um, but I was grateful because then I did find out, like I said, it, it made sense when I got my labs back that I had uh, a lot of these, you know, Lyme and co-infections and it all made sense in hindsight of why I had this, you know, these issues that I had had for many years. Okay. So let's now talk about Lyme disease. Okay. What did you know about Lyme disease before you were diagnosed with Lyme disease? Um, and then I want you, after you talk to me about what you knew about Lyme disease, I want you to talk to, to us about what you learned during the time that you were either doing your educational work or you were, um, you were training. What did, what did you know and what did, and what did you learn from, a, from a, either an educational or an experiential standpoint about Lyme disease? Sure. So uh, at first, like 20 years prior, I worked with somebody who specialized in Lyme in California. And so I was very well aware that it was out here in Malibu. You know, a lot of people were undiagnosed and that there were alternative treatments. This, this person was a naturopath. And so they used homeopathic series kits. They used a lot of different things and herbal formulas to help, you know, her clients with that had Lyme. So, so, you, so before that, let me, let me interrupt you for one second, Dr. Beckman. Before you worked with the naturopathic doctor who specialized in treating with people with Lyme, did you know anything at all about Lyme disease? Oh, prior, yeah, like in college, no. Yeah, I mean, during your life, did, were there, did you have any experiences that put you in a position where you were aware of Lyme disease and how you could contract Lyme disease and, and what steps you might want to take to protect yourself from contracting Lyme disease? No, because because what I learned, yeah, when, when I became aware of this was working with a, a specialist and she, but that was, I was a bit, a year out of college. So I was quite young, but no, prior to that, I, I don't think I'd ever heard of it. I grew up in Dallas, definitely. And I didn't hear about it, um, you know, as a teenager in Los Angeles either. Okay. So now <clears throat> you're working with this practitioner, you're observing this practitioner treat people with Lyme disease, and you're indicating that you had some health issues of your own. Were you seeing any of your own health issues, tracking the issues that you were seeing the Lyme practitioner treat? And at that time, did you ever think that there was the possibility that you yourself had Lyme disease? I didn't. I did not. Not at that point. Okay. So yeah. when did you first suspect that you might be uh, suffering from Lyme disease? You know, I'm not... Um probably when I got the test, which was only three years ago. Well, I, I, you know, I had a lot of, so I was, I basically, most all my symptoms were kept at bay as long as I was on a zero gluten, zero dairy, and pretty much no sugar, not even honey or maple syrup. So I leave, I have a very strict um, diet like that, that kept joint pain and migraines. It, it got rid of it. So I figured that it was actually only because of that, right? Like that it was just inflammation from foods that were bad for, that were inflammatory for myself. 
So now looking back at that, knowing that you had Lyme disease, do you believe that you were that your your joint pains and your migraines were actually a symptom of Lyme disease, but because you were so uh, Spartan about uh, the way you were living your lives, li living your life, that you that you were able to assist your immune system in managing the microbes, and you ultimately did not get the uh, Lyme diagnosis until, despite managing the microbes, until later on when you when you finally took the Lyme disease test. Definitely, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Lyme disease and how you define Lyme disease. Uh, you know, we we are um, we are in a strange arena where we almost have as many definitions of Lyme disease as we have practitioners who are practicing in the Lyme arena. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about why that's the case. But give me your definition of Lyme disease. So again, I would probably be on your alternate spectrum, right? So I do use. I mean, I have a questionnaire and then I also use Vibrant America Tick-Borne Panel. So I do like to test if I think that somebody is exhibiting symptoms. It's also not the first test I do use because again, I mean, if they were less expensive then I would say ever, you know, most people with wandering joint pain and a lot of these, you know, certain just hallmark symptoms would be great to get tested but they're very expensive. So often what we do is work on some of the other things that can make that worse, right? We can lower the whatever, try and see what's lowering the immune system, allowing these different pathogens to flourish, right? So, let's, so let's, well, let, let's get to the definition. We'll get to the testing in a minute. Oh, sorry. So Pa, me, I would love for- Give me your definition. Give me your definition of Lyme disease. So I would look for positive test, um, uh, in various areas of the tick-borne panel that I look at. And I know that there's a CDC criteria and then there's an alternative Lyme disease criteria. And okay. I still... Yeah, so so let me let me give you our definition here sure. at the boot camp, right? Um, because there again, there are just so many different people who have so many different definitions. And we, we have synthesized what we think is the proper de definition of Lyme right. disease. Um, and uh, the, the, the first step for us is that Lyme disease is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. That's how we define Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, and one of the arguments that we make often um, is that the reason primary care docs have challenges with diagnosing Lyme disease is because they don't have a definition for the disease. In many cases, they think it is um, an acute infection from one bacteria, uh, you know, one one species of Borrelia, um, as opposed to it being something else, right? And and that's why there's so much debate in the community. Is it a chronic illness? Is it a, an acute illness? Is it one bacteria? Is it, you know, and we and we just cut through the chase and and we take the position: if you're acutely ill, you don't have Lyme disease. So we don't even get into the debate about whether or not it can be chronic. It is only chronic. If you don't have a, a multi-systemic um, uh, presentation. Uh, then you don't have Lyme disease. And if it's not a, from a polymicrobial uh, infection, then you don't have Lyme disease. Now, you may have acute Babesia, you may have acute Borreliosis, you may have acute anaplasma, anaplasmosis. I mean, there are these other presentations, but Lyme disease is a chronic infection. So give me your reaction. Do you, do you like our definition of this polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease, or is that something that you don't think is a good working definition? No, I think that's a perfect working definition. They, they're always, you know, they run together. They're, I, 
I've yet to see something in isolation. Okay. So now that we have a definition that we agree on, and I'm glad we do, I can tell you, I, I interviewed uh, Dr. Dempsey last week, and she's brilliant, uh, Dr. Tanya Dempsey. And we had a big, long debate about, uh, about uh, how you define Lyme disease. And we had a big, long debate about, you know, the word Lyme, and she hates the word Lyme, and she's very much in the Dr. McDonald camp, we should be divorcing from Lyme. And we had a really fun debate. And we're actually going to be posting that as a, as a point and counterpoint and putting it all over social media. It was really a lot of fun. Um, and um, not to say that you're not a lot of fun, but I'm glad we agree on the definition because it, may, it allows us to sort of move forward from here. So you, you're, you're defining in your practice uh, Lyme disease as, as a polymicrobial multisystemic chronic infectious disease. And because you're defining it that way, you're now looking for the, this symptomology. And when you see the symptomology, you're now going to go forward with some very expensive testing. But in your view, it's really the only test that can give you the type of tools you need to properly diagnose the people that you're working with, right? So talk to us about the types of tests you do. What are the names of the tests uh, that, you, that you generally like to use with, with uh, patients who are working with you? So I, if we're looking just at Lyme, there's a, there are two panels from a company called Vibrant America that I use. There's Tickborn 1.0 and 2.0. <laughs> So 2.0 is more comprehensive and also includes some other, their viral pathogen panel. So a lot of times other things like there can be staph and strep and Epstein-Barr and uh, the whole different, you know, different strains in the herpes family. So again, that adds those pathogens to it as well. And it adds additional tick-borne illness pathogens too. So, so I, I love that. So what you're saying is that the testing that you're doing is not just looking at traditional um, Lyme um, microbes, but you're looking at a whole panel of microbes because you understand that when somebody's chronically ill, the pot is boiling over and there are a number of other microbes that are working together, many of which we've picked up during our lives that our, that our immune system was able to manage. And then when these microbes come together and they boil over and they, they overwhelm your immune system, you wanna get a sense of what is, uh, what is going on collectively, not just focusing on what was spit into them by a tick or what they may have picked up from other vectors. Exactly, and then the other big one that I always make sure, I, I really like the organic acid panel, which shows a lot of information on metabolic markers, but uh, the most important for anybody to me with Ly with Lyme is also the mycotoxin test because most of the time what I have seen is there's a history of mold exposure which is exacerbated and or brought the Lyme situation up. And so uh, that is actually my, like my number one thing. I don't always do Lyme. I, I mean, I actually don't do Lyme tests a lot because it adds a whole nother big chunk and it's not what I work on with someone in the beginning, unless we need to support some acute, you know, pain and, and symptoms and things like that. But I want to go after why is the Lyme flourishing? And I want to wow. look for why. I love that. I, I love that because we've, we've interviewed some doctors um, in the past who have told us that it's really important to make sure that we're looking at the, at the mold exposure because in many cases, we've had doctors tell us that if you treat the mold exposure, the immune system is no longer overwhelmed and it can manage the mess, rest of the microbes. And, and, and in, in those cases, treating the, the, the mold was enough for them to, to overcome the challenges that, was being, that were being created by the Lyme and they didn't have to treat the Lyme. Now we, 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 we've had some you know, 
folks jump up and down when we when we've shared those podcasts. Right. Uh, but but quite frankly, um, it, it does seem to me that mold has to be an essential element of analysis when you're going through the treatment protocol or 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 not, right? And the first clue we had to that, quite frankly, was when we interviewed Dr. Rawls the first or second time, he's one of our mentors on, on yeah. this podcast. Um, he had shared with us that in very few cases would someone go from tick bite to chronic illness. And in his experience, um, he, he only saw it under two circumstances. Circumstance one was when somebody suffered multiple tick bites, meaning they they they, they tripped into a, a a a nest and they suffer multiple tick bites and they get you know their the, the patient got overwhelmed with the microbes, and the second circumstance that he saw was uh, was when people were living in a in a high mold environment where they had uh, they had a great deal of mold exposure and because they had so much mold exposure their immune system couldn't manage the microbes after the tick bite, so in those in those cases there would be tick bite chronic illness on a on a, on on a on a tight um, timeline but he also argued that the overwhelming majority of cases when he was a practitioner that it was actually there was a long gap in time between a thick bite and chronic illness because there were so many other things that were that were going on so that was the first clue that we had that we really had to focus on mold and then we had other practitioners tell us well wait a minute I've had many cases where when we treated the we treated them all, that's all we needed to do, and, and folks were getting better. So we 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 came to understand here at Tech Bootcamp that that's a vital, vital piece of it. And I love the way you're describing why that's so important to you and how you're treating that. Yeah, I would say again, it's an individual case-by-case case analysis to see how, but how much goes away when you do resolve the mold issue. Not everybody that's going to be the entire solution, right? And a lot of times too, we we still need to take some of the herbs that will help against Lyme and all the co-infections and various things because it's just been overwhelming for the body for so long. But I always, again, I don't like to say always, but predominantly start with mold toxicity first, clear that, and then get a better picture of what we're dealing with Lyme-wise and co-infection-wise and, and also other pathogens, right? A huge, huge, huge thing that most people come to me for is Epstein-Barr, yet when it's almost always activated, reactivated by mold. And so then I'm not always giving antivirals and things like that, unless we feel like we really need to like, support that system while we're working on the, the main root cause of the mold. Okay. Now you talked a little bit about environmental toxins earlier in our conversation. Tell me, tell me when you're bringing in your testing for environmental toxins, and is that the same time when you're testing for mold, or is that a, is that a, a separate step in your in your uh, diagnostic process? I like to do the organic acid test, the environmental toxin test, which includes around uh, pesticide like pesticides and glyphosates and uh, glyphosate, and then the mycotoxin test, and then heavy metal test, and I also do a hair mineral test. And I like to do all those at the beginning because I want to see what's going on. And then, like I said, the Lyme tests are something I might do at the beginning, but usually I wait a little while to see what we're, what we're really working with. I mean, because that's a huge picture on its own. <laughs> so, right. so a lot so, of information. So, so tell, us, tell us why you're choosing to do the environmental toxin testing before you do the Lyme testing. Um, is it because of cost? Is it because even, even if someone had unlimited resources, you're probably going to have to go through a 
prehabilitation process before you do the killing anyway. So let's let's get the terrain in in a good place before we start to kill. Or do you have some other philosophy? I, I'm just I'm just interested in why what your thought process is. I guess I would say if somebody had unlimited funds, then we would do the Lyme test too, right? Not unlimited, but you know, if they if you really want to know the full picture, then that's great to do. But I don't repeat a Lyme test from like very long time where again, I kind of want to see how is the body processing some of these toxins and getting rid of things and then see where they are. And most people are not certain they are just, they think they might have had Lyme or again, a lot of people, there are plenty of people who have had a positive Lyme test in the past. And then, but again, it, it's usually something that is a bit more, you know, standard. And so I want to see what else is on in their body that was not picked up on that test because it was definitely not tested for, right? So I want to see these other ones for all the different, not all the different, but a bunch of the different co-infections that are part of this panel that I, I really like to get a bigger picture because people can be very sick from, you know, from various other ones that are not even addressed. So Dr. McMahon, let me ask a question a little bit differently. Um, I'm someone who has unlimited resources and I come to you and you say to me, okay, Rich, I'm going to test you for various, uh, very, I'm going to do the environmental toxin uh, test. I'm going to do the mold uh, test. I'm going to go bring you through my, my, my whole panel. And I'm going to give you a Lyme disease test as well, because, you know, because the, you know, I, I want you to have the picture as early as possible. But would you treat me any differently if you just did the first two tests and didn't do the Lyme test? Then if you did all you did all three tests and I did test positive for Lyme, would you would the would the prehabilitation element of 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 of, of treating me be any different if you did or didn't do the Lyme test um, in this in this initial phase of of testing that you're doing? So if you're someone who has really not done much and is very new on the journey, the first few months would be more minimal to prep you for what we would be doing. Uh, but so you would not be doing, you would not be getting Lyme support or herbal tinctures or homeopathics at that point. If you're someone who has a lot of symptoms of Lyme, neurological pain, just whatever that might be for the individual, I would probably give you some sort of support along the way earlier than if I didn't think that you had Lyme, if that makes sense. Like if we didn't test and I didn't, we really weren't seeing if it was in the picture at all. I would, you know, be more hesitant. I would be focusing more on the other things that we find in the test because there's going to be plenty. But I also, you know, we do want to some come, um, nourish the system. And sometimes you do need to support some symptomology throughout the process, even though the biggest piece might be mold to begin with. Tell us when you begin to introduce detox protocols and what are the protocols that you recommend for, uh, for detoxification? So again, I'm sure you hear this all the time, depends on the person. So I, have, I tend to have a lot of very, very sensitive clients. And I also have people that you know can take four capsules of something, let's just say. But I also get someone who needs like a pinch of something or a drop of a homeopathic and you have to be very cautious. So a lot of times we need to make sure and prep prior. So we need to make sure that, you know, there's someone, they're going to the bathroom, that they can sweat, um, that if someone, you know, really depends on where they are because everybody is so different, but at the same time, we still want you moving forward so that we can keep 
basically your drainage pathways open, but also making it so that you, my job is to make you go through this with as little symptoms as possible and still moving forward. So again, that has to be customized so much. So I, I even, I do use a lot of homeopathic remedies too. Um, and then did, did you want certain companies that I like or what? Sure. Yeah, yeah, we, we'd like as much detail as you could give us. Our folks want to, you know, they want to know what options they have. And, uh, and if you could share some of the uh, tools you customarily use with patients. And again, it is, it is going to be a in, in, in individualized analysis, which is why we have to work with practitioners. Uh, but but talk about some of the things you would customarily use um, when you're um, when you're dealing with um, detox and why detox is so important. Sure. So again, the first thing you want to make sure you're going to the bathroom regularly. If someone's not pooping, they can't. They should not be detoxing. That's your number one thing to focus on, right? Um, so with that, sometimes that takes some herbs for the bowel. Otherwise, I am a big fan of magnesium. Um, I use bioptimizers just because it has multiple seven forms in it, but that's what I use. If someone can't use that, we have singular forms um, or topical magnesium spray. Again, if you can't take anything internally. I also look at the minerals to see if you have any major imbalances or how you are at absorbing your nutrients and minerals. And this is a good place to check that because a lot of times people overlook these foundational things that make it actually much harder to detox properly so that you won't feel so badly, right? If you're getting, if you're herpsing from everything, something's not right and it's, you're, it's too aggressive for you. So okay. I also- yeah, I use Desbio homeopathic drainage kits. Um, there's other brands, there's Picana. So again, if you need to be super gentle, there are some great lines. And then the main brands that I use in general are Cellcore, Quicksilver, uh, Zuma, and Desbio. So those are, and then I use some designs for health products too. Okay. Now you um, you also shared with us uh, that you wrote your thesis on epigenetics. Yes. Uh, let's talk about the difference between genetics and epigenetics, and how uh, epigenetics is an element of your diagnostic uh, analysis. Sure. So epigenetics basically it literally means above the genetic code. So everyone comes in; their genetics do not change, but what does change is your expression of them. So the way we feel, our mindset, the food we eat, the way we move our body, um, the supplements we take, all of these things have an impact and are giving our genetic data or our genes data in order to express in a favorable or unfavorable way. So what we wanna do is turn on the favorable expression and minimize unfavorable expression. Unfavorable expression would be you know, when we get certain diseases or cancer or things like that. And there are actually markers that we have in our genes that can show us how we detox and if we need to optimize certain things, which again, I have found that a lot of the people that are have chronic illness, they have some issues and this, this is beyond methylation, right? It can, it has a lot to do too, even with glutathione and a whole bunch of other detox pathways and in inflammatory pathways too. So I do look, uh, some of the testing companies that I use have panels that look at Lyme toxic, Lyme and mold and 
um, beyond just nutritional needs and things like that. But again, I tell people, this is the blueprint you came in with. Life is what changes it. And we can though help optimize things so that we can detox from things um, as optimally as possible. So let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, I want to geek out with you because this is something that you have uh, some academic uh, expertise in, and and and, you, and you've written on it, right? So I remember when we were we, we were going through the process of uh, the human genome pro uh, project, right? And I'm old enough to remember that, right? And one of the things that was really wild, I remember at the time, was that they were arguing that we were less genetically complex than an onion, right? And that and that we had all of this, what they were calling at the time, junk genes, right? These were genes that, you know, which, which we ultimately came to understand is, uh, you know, one of the things that we are so we are so flexible and, and the reason we are so good at changing in our environment is that most of our code is not coded. Right, it gets coded based on based on um, you know environmental changes, and it allows us to you know evolve pretty quickly because we have this flexibility built within our genetic code, which has now been known as epigenetics. But the downside to having you know all of this genetic flexibility is when we find ourselves in a toxic environment, or we find ourselves under stress, or we find ourselves there can be these presentations that are not serving us, right? And that's really what the challenge is that you have to look at as a practitioner. How has our body, based on our life experiences and based on the toxins, the environmental toxins and the mold and the all of the all of the microbes that you know we 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 are we are um, trying to manage, how that's creating a an expression, a genetic expression that's not serving us, and that you have to analyze that as a practitioner and come up with ways of overcoming these expressions that have been perverted and are not serving us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the thing. They say basically that 90% of these genetic expressions are actually from our, you know, we have the control over that. It's our environment and the input that we are giving it. So even though it's an, I think it's a great piece to look at the genetics. It's really, you know, to me that they are, I look at them as that we need to take our power back. You have so much control over your genetic destiny and you need to utilize these things. And they're actually not that hard, right? If people took 10 minutes to meditate or just got in the sunshine, moved their body, I know I said this a little bit before. And then again, even just cooked real food, right? Not, I'm not even going with gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, just actually ate real food that we cook and we know exactly what it is. So many things and people would feel so much better and their inflammation would go way down. But a lot of the things, you know, we don't have a lot of control over. So a lot of the things that we can, I think it is important, right? Like the, the food we buy and the, the products that we put on our skin, those things we can control. And that's why I try to help people make choices that we can actually impact as opposed to all the things in our environment and air and water that we don't have as much control over really. I'm glad you brought that back because at this phase of your um, your diagnostic analysis, um, you know, and I think it's important that we bring this together. You talked about the free things folks can do that can assist them and assist their body and, and most importantly, assist their immune system in managing these microbes that they have to that they have to manage, and 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 you talked about environmental toxins. You talked about mold. You talked about uh, you know detox. You talked about now epigenetics. 
But what you know, part of what what you seem to be analyzing is not just calling them free tools, but are you engaging in behaviors that you have control over that are serving you so that you are now supporting your terrain and supporting your immune system so that you can better manage it, such as movement, right? One of the things that Dr. Bill Rawls told us last year in our Lyme Hackathon is that he believed he walked himself to health, that having that type of movement was, was something that was vital to um, to his uh, to his uh, to his recovery, right? And you're you're saying the same thing. This is a free thing you can do. And obviously, some people are so sick that they have to be very gentle about how they get their movement. But movement is a vital element of detoxification, and it's a vital element of you of you um, recovering from these diseases and aiding your immune system, right? You talked about you talked about fluid intakes, right? And you talked about how much water people are drinking and what their water so source is and, 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 and making sure that they're supporting themselves. Well, you talked, you talked about, you talked about food and the kinds of foods they're taking in. And, and, and I think you forgot to re-mention that poison piece, which is sugar, right? Which is so hard to overcome. And it's so hard to, hard to avoid, especially when you're sick, right? So give us all of those pieces, which you were referring to as the, the free pieces, but really the important analysis you're doing with the lifestyle elements and how important it is to bring that all together when you're helping people to get ready for this phase where you may have to start to kill the bugs. Sure. So, and the last one that we touched on a little bit, but is mindset, right? All right. And um, I would say one of the biggest things, especially for someone that's chronically ill, and we all do this, so it's not to point fingers at anyone, it's just to be aware, right? A lot of people identify with their disease. It's the story they say over and over and over, which keeps further ingraining it into your cells. And again, as a practitioner, I get to hear people say things over and over. So we work on tweaking, you know, and disassociating Lyme disease with a with a person and their individual individual nature, right? So a lot of people own it and say, my Lyme disease, my whatever it is, my migraines, or the same like with mold, my house is killing me. Or, you know, there's all these things that people say when they talk about their journey or just to practitioners. And I think that it's a huge, huge piece that people overlook and then and that's actually integral to them getting better, right? With this either brain rewiring or, you know, limbic training. Um, that's a big piece. And again, something that someone can do on their own, yet a lot of people don't want to do it, which I get it. Um, but it's also, you know, just as people don't remember or even know, probably even just there's the, which you guys know of the neuropsychoimmunology, just watching something sad or bad news lowers your immune system and will keep you sick longer, right? but it's what spreads, it's what people watch on the internet or TV and things like that. And so it's, again, being very mindful and cleaning up areas of our life that we are unaware that are actually impacting your immune system and keeping you sick longer that, you know, are very normal to everybody, but it's yes. important I think, to just get the awareness. And then again, the next step is implementing and catching yourself when you say these things on a day-to-day -day basis and, and just changing them in your mind, right? Okay, so I, I, I love that you've brought this up at this point, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because 
you know, one of the one of the most difficult conversations that we have in this podcast, and what triggers most of the negative uh, responses that we get, is when we talk about the mindset piece, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think, like you, it is a vital element of healing. But because so many people are invalidated by the practitioners that they've treat they've treated with, because they've been gaslit by doctors and so many people that they have in their lives, because so many people are told that it's all in their head. When we begin to talk about the mindset piece, it becomes triggering for folks and they shut down when we're having the conversation. And, 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 and that's the, you know, that's the, you know, the, 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 the saddest part of this when, when we have a medical system that's failing patients on so many different levels, it then, it then ingrains a mindset in them that puts them in a position where they can't heal. Right. Because if your mindset is that you're sick, because our, because our mind is a search engine and it's going to find more and more of what it is that we focus on, we're going to get more and more of sick. But even more importantly, what happens is it triggers us into fight or flight. And we're in fight or flight, it, it, it suppresses our immune system and it makes it less likely that all the microbes that we've already been talking about and all of the environmental toxins and all of the mold that we're trying to manage can't be managed because what's happened is we're very, we have a very sensitive fight or flight trigger. We get triggered into fight or flight, and then our immune system is suppressed, right? So we do have to work on this mindset piece. But one of the things I'd like you to react to, because I had a conversation with Ashley uh, Marber about this in the not too distant past. No, I'm sorry, Ashley Bellinger, who's a you know, brilliant practitioner and, and, and a wonderful person. And when we were talking about this, she said, I was so sick that I couldn't focus on another thing. I couldn't do any neurally training. I couldn't do DRNS. I couldn't do any of that because I was so sick. I couldn't take on something else at that stage of my journey. So give me your reaction to the mindset piece and how we can help folks, uh, you know, have a mindset that will serve them rather than hurt them, yeah. uh, but not give them the additional burden of, of going through a neurally training program at a stage when they're really, really sick. So first off, I would say if your practitioner or the doc, it's generally doctor is not listening to you and dismisses you and says it's all in your head, then you need to find a new practitioner, right? That I think is first and foremost, you know, even if you basically want someone who again is, will listen and they'll say, well, let's work on a solution, not this is, you know, you get not gaslight you, right? So I think that's what's very sad is that, again, most people that have come to me, it's the same situation. Most doctors that they have sought out have just said it's all in your head and or, you know, you're depressed or anxious and here's some antidepressants, right? But Can we talk that piece out a little bit more before you finish your thought? And I'm sorry to interrupt you because, <laughs> because if a doctor says that to you, the doctor is not making you emotionally, not, not, not damaging you just emotionally, but that doctor is also damaging you physiologically because you now cannot heal. Your immune system is suppressed when a doctor tells that to you. I guess the thing is too, is I, yeah, um, it's the difference, right? There's, I think the people end up, you end up getting resilient to it because you know, deep down there is something wrong. Right. And so Unfortunately, people have to keep persevering to find someone that will listen. And that's definitely not the way a doctor should be, right? People should not be needing to seek out, you know, the help of apparently trained professionals that are dismissing them. Yeah, so because bedside manner is as important, if not more important than the, than, than the, uh, 
than the recommendations that a doctor is going to be making you for whatever protocol they're giving to you. Right. Yeah. And a lot of people, again, the first step is they're going to their regular GP who is probably not going to know anything about Lyme disease, nor what to test for or anything, right? It's the same with mold toxicity. They're, they just always say pretty much, oh, the black mold doesn't even make people sick, right? And and what? I still have patients constantly that say, you know, are you sure this isn't in my head, even though they have positive tests, positive, you know, like all these, it's proof, but they're still very doubtful as well because of what journey they've had so far. And for most people, it's been over a decade. Dr. Beckman, I'm going to jump in real quick. So I want to ask you, we talked about mold a couple of times and we have had Dr. Jill Carnahan on and she taught us a lot about different types of mold and different types of mycotoxins and how she coined the term, and I don't know if she coined it, but she used the term mold personalities. And she talked about how some people that come into her practice and have these like narcoleptic-like or, you know, narcolepsy-like episodes that that's correlated to a certain type of mold. People that come in and have certain maybe anxiety or fear-based, you know, out of the blue episodes that can be associated with another type of mold. And even things like anger and, and homicidal thoughts potentially can be linked to certain types of mold as well. Do you, do you agree with that, that these mold species are correlated to certain emotional changes and you use those types of, of observations to help guide your patients with testing to treat various strains of mold to, you know, kick off their training before you get into Lyme treatment? So, yes, so we, I always work on mold prior to Lyme because we often can get the Lyme, you know, get the Lyme symptoms down by managing mold and getting the immune system to be functioning at a better level. And the same with some of the other viruses that might get activated. Uh, there are definite certain pathways that certain molds will go like more neurological or attack the liver or the kidneys. And so that can manifest in different expressions and symptoms physically. And some people, yes, it, I would say also it can kind of go with their constitution. So since I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner as well, I look at those in regards of to the liver, the kidney, and the liver has a lot to do with anger and the outbursts. So there are a lot of people that do get that um, expression, but it's also depression too is kind of the opposite and affects the liver too. And then there are some that, again, they just attack different systems with mold and so they can have different expressions but i i haven't categorized them exactly like that because i do see so much of very similar types of mold but again everyone is still so unique that i could have even within the same family people have very different reactions and different symptoms and they're pretty much exposed to the same types of mold and so it's it's been a very interesting process to see and correlate with labs so Dr. Beckman, what I'm hearing is you have the emotional expression of mold exposure, but the correlation of that to certain emotions, you know, deep down is really, there's a layer there where it's how it's impacting your organ systems. And you're looking at how your organ system is being impacted and that's your guide. And that, that then triggers the emotional response, right? So you're looking at the organ health, which helps you identify the strain of, or, or the type of mold. And that's, that's kind of your analysis a little bit deeper. It sounds like, right? Yes, I think I almost do it the opposite way. Like I look and see, does mold attack the kidneys? And then if so, oh, that's very interesting that this person has a lot more fear and anxiety and issues with the antidiuretic hormone and bedwetting and for a child, for example. Or I might look and see, oh, this one is more of a neurological attack. This patient or client has a lot more um, anger outbursts and and more, um, like more mental disturbances and things like that, like for a gliotoxin, for example. 
but it is, yeah, I kind of go downstream that way. But again, I always am fascinated to see like constitutionally if someone is impacted more by what organ uh, from a Chinese medicine perspective. So I also wanted to bounce back, you and Richard were talking earlier about just different tools that you use. And two of the things that popped out when you were talking, one of them was silver. And I had this discussion recently with somebody and you know, we hear about colloidal silver all the time. And there's different brands out there and a lot of popular ones, but it seems to be very controversial, the use of colloidal silver, especially in we'll call Western medicine. Why do you think, you know, I guess, A, how do you use colloidal silver? And B, why do you think it's so controversial? Because some people say it's it's really a strong antimicrobial and it helps, you know, bolster your, your immune system. So what do you think colloidal silver is really doing with the human body? And why do you think it's so controversial? So I definitely have used it quite a bit and it is something that I rotate for people. And so I don't just put them on it indefinitely because a lot of times I'm working with people for over a year and a half, right? Or more, like if someone has chronic Lyme or chronic mold exposure, or again, their detox pathways make it so that they detox more slowly. They're on a lot of protocols a long time, even though we're moving through them. So I cycle on and off with silver. And again, I think it's very controversial from a lot of information that was, I don't know when this was, if it was in the nineties, right. Where everyone's sort of kind of like the blue man that basically, you know, you just, I forget he, and there are people like that. I mean, I was in Santa Monica and you would see this guy, right. Who just, he made so much uh, silver that he, he looked kind of blue. And so base or grayish. And basically though, there are a lot of people that I think it's, you know, the people that have the great silver companies and I have a couple that I love and use, they have the size down correctly. And so that it's really optimal. And again, in Chinese medicine, even though we don't use them a lot anymore, because of course metals can be toxic in, and it also depends on the, you know, a lot of factors, but a lot of these things actually were antimicrobial, antimalarial, like antibacterial, antiviral. And so they do have certain properties, but they do have to be used correctly. And then again, I, again, like to look at genetics and see, does someone process metals really well, or are they someone who doesn't? And if it's someone who doesn't, then I'm a bit more cautious with them and I would be rotating them more frequently. I want to get to the genetics conversation a little bit deeper, but I think what I'm hearing though, is there's pro and cons to using a, a silver-based product that it is anti almost everything and it's going to help you clean your system, right? And I'm being dramatic, of course, yeah. right? But it's very, very broad when it, what, what it addresses for bad things in your body, fungal, bacterial, you know, infections, et cetera, right? Viral. But if it is a heavy metal and heavy metals generally are toxic to our body as well. So although we're killing off a ton of things in our body, we're also exposing ourselves to a heavy metal which if we're really not detoxing well, then that can be a problem and maybe cause even more problems on the flip side. And I think that's what you're saying by genetic testing. You're saying, well, can you filter out the heavy metals? Do you have a problem detoxing heavy metals? And if so, I'm going to be more cautious to put you on them. Is that what you're saying? It is because even people could detox differently between mold, pesticides, glyphosate, um, metals, even the dis different forms of metals. And so again, it's when someone says, and I use this term a lot, so I'm just clarifying it. They don't detox well or properly or, you know, things are more impaired. There are a whole lot of factors within that. And when I look at this with clients for like, for example, for myself, like um, 
I'm more prone to have some issues with Lyme and pesticides, let's say, but metals I clear very well. So, you know, everyone is quite unique and that's why I do like to pair these things together because it really helps me fine tune treatment protocols to help people where, you know, you, you can't do that when you're working in a big group or you just have protocols in a book and things like that, which again, can be very helpful, but there are some fine tuned nuances that you can use. So before I move away from the silvers, what I know people listening always ask us these specific types of questions. What types of silver do you recommend? What are some brands and products that you think is a good amount of silver that's not going to be too toxic from, from a treatment standpoint to be the anti-everything? Do you have some recommendations you can provide to our listeners? So I use Despio silver. Um, there's Sovereign silver and, and then there's Silver Biotics. And, you know, sometimes these companies make them for each other too. So they're sometimes the same product. Uh, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and I want to emphasize because, you know, when we first started learning about genetics, it seemed really scary. Like, oh my goodness, I have the double MTHFR gene. I'm never going to get better. I have the HLA-DR gene. I'm more susceptible to mold. And then we interviewed Dr. Uh, Bob Miller, who talked to us about all these genetic tests that he's doing and how you can overcome some of these genetic predispositions with sometimes things as simple as just a dietary change, increasing your fiber intake, decreasing maybe your iron intake or increasing your iron intake, right? And these dietary changes that we know are correlated to certain genetic SNPs help us overcome them. And that's why it's so important to know what we have from a genetic predisposition standpoint, so we can address them either A, using diet or B, using other means. So I guess the first part of my question is, do you believe genetic predispositions are really scary and for the most part with your patients, or are they easily overcome with proper knowledge and tools? I don't believe they're scary at all. And that's usually the first thing I preface when I'm speaking to someone about their genetics. And again, I say that, you know, this is basically great information for you to have now because you have the time to, to make these changes and to make it so that you will be, have the same I don't even like to say the word risk, but same propensity of this happening as somebody that doesn't have any sort of genetic correlation to this. So for me, getting this information is valuable and useful and basically helps circumvent poss only possibilities of something that might happen. People freak out, you know, over these things. And I say, this is, you know, this is just a blueprint of possibility, your genes. This is, does not mean because we're going over this and it says you have a high likelihood of this happening that this is going to happen to you this is just something that is an option what we can do is make these specific changes so this is not an option for you and we've seen this this ties into what you and rich were talking about where when we're triggered even more into fight or flight we don't make informed educated logical or rational decisions and when that fear comes in of oh my goodness i have all these genetic problems it makes us more paralyzed. And we've, and unfortunately, we've seen this with so many people in this community, and myself included, where I'm not going to get better. So why am I bothering, right? It kind of reinforces that sick mindset. And I think that's, that's a problem that we have to look at as well. I, I, I've seen it myself, right? It's, it's just unfortunate. And, and I think that's part of the mindset piece that you and Rich talked about so well before. But when it comes to these genetic tests, you know, it used to be 23andMe did more Then they, they paired back and it wasn't even great, right? But then they paired back what they even offer. And you could have those results, you know, analyzed. And this, I mean, Cassidy Colbert, we had on three years ago, did it, I don't know what, 10 years ago, Richie did her genetic testing. And she gave us some cool guidance there. Then we interviewed Bob, Bob Miller, who talks about, you know, what he does through Tree of Life. When you do genetic testing with your clients, what lab do you work with? Where do you send, where do you send these samples for them to get the genetic testing so they can know what their genetic makeup is to make informed decisions to overcome those little things that they have going on in their, in their individualized care? 
For sure. So again, what I also suggest is going with a company that doesn't sell your data. I think that that's really critical. And another thing is to, you know, if you want to be extra certain, you can just use, you know, another name that does not need to be, you know, tied to you per se, if you're uh, rightfully concerned about having your genetic data out there. But what I use is I was trained and worked with a company called Apiron. I worked with them for many years. I also use a company called Self Decode, which has a lot of information. And um, I, when you work with a practitioner like myself, you get access to more reports. And so then when a patient or client's working with me, I can, you can access more that way. And I also like nutri Nutrition Genome. Again, they have a lot of information. I wish there was a perfect one and there's not, right? Like I wish that there was something that made it really beautiful for the consumer and really, really went into the, uh, the depths of what I like to see because I basically focus on how does someone detox, right? And what are these possible road bumps that I'm gonna come across with, my, with the chronically ill patients because pretty much that's mostly what I'm working with are people with mold and Lyme and have been sick with mystery and autoimmune illness, right? So I'm looking at different markers, but there is a lot of information within um, those three companies, but I, I pretty much, I use self-decode the most at this point. And again, I, I look around at different ones though, because they all have plus and minuses. And then you can go very deep into very science oriented, you know, there's MTHFR support, which you can upload your raw data to really dive into methylation. But again, I don't want people reinforcing, which happens all the time. And again, I, I have said it too, like, oh, I don't detox well, so blah, 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 blah. Like this is not gonna, I'm just gonna be sick, right? For me, it was actually an amazing piece of information because when I first started testing myself for toxins, because I've lived such a clean lifestyle, I detoxed four times a year with these cleanses, like, you know, a crazy person since high school. And I thought there's no way I have any toxins. I did preconception detox for a year and I got my lab back and this was Great Plains at the time, which I, I use Vibrant America now, but they had a great toxin panel. They said, this is one of the worst we've ever seen. What do you do? And I said, what? You know, I couldn't believe it. And so then that spawned, like really got on under me to figure out why I had all these toxins in my body when I did all these things but it was only food, you know, food and herbs. I had never taken glutathione. I had never taken anything to optimize any of the pathways. And um, it was very interesting and eye-opening and it shifted my entire practice. So again, I also do live in Los Angeles. So we are notoriously, our, our labs are notoriously horrible for toxins. Most people can look at a lab and go, oh, do you live on the West Coast? <laughs> so. I can, you know, when I see someone's lab that is very high in certain things, they're either live in a, you know, big city also don't detox optimally, or they live near maybe a plant processing plant or things like that on the East coast is very common too. Right. And so, you know, there's just a lot of factors and it's, I just, I love the testing to see, you know, because we can think we're doing all these things and you feel, well, I mean, it's not that I felt amazing, but I didn't think toxins were an issue, right? I do want to ask a, a follow-up question about genetics because we've had 
differing views from specialists, you know, Lyme litter doctors on this podcast about Ehlers Danlos syndrome. And we've had strong opinions, one on the side of EDS is a genetic problem. It's something you're born with and it's not related to Lyme disease. And it's just something that is a co-condition that you have. And if you get Lyme, maybe it's worse because of your EDS, pre, you know, genetic disease, but it's not related. We have other doctors come on and say, absolutely not. EDS can be triggered by Lyme. It's an epigenetics problem, or it's just simply triggered by Lyme, right? I mean, where do you fit into that? Because it's hard to determine, is it something that's a co-condition or is it something that is brought on by Lyme and connected to Lyme disease? You know, we've had a lot of debate over that over the past year or so on this topic. And Matt, let's just be clear. I think that some of the practitioners who have talked about EDS argued that it was actually not, again, Lyme, other than, you know, if we're using the broad spectrum, but it's actually Bartonella. That Bartonella right. may may trigger some types of EDS. I think so. This is EDS is definitely not my area of specialty. And if someone has that, I usually refer them out to somebody who works with it even more. But I have had a couple of clients that do have it in conjunction with a whole, whole host of other things. So I would say when it comes to these Lyme and these other stealth pathogens, I think that they can trigger so many things that are, are classified as diseases that I would I would be more inclined to say that the Lyme was triggering something that maybe the, the genetic path, you know, the genetic probability was underlying. And then again, that assault from the Lyme toxin and was too much and it activated it. So, so this, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, but this makes me think you talked earlier about like trauma and emotions triggering genetics and epigenetics. So, you know, genetics are basically what you're born with. It's like kind of like out of the box, right? This is this is your DNA. And epigenetics are, hey, ex external factors that can turn a gene one way or another. It can be, hey, you have this bad gene and it's off, but this external factor is going to turn that gene on and be bad for you, right? I'm making it very simple so I can understand it because it's a complex topic for me. But when we have something like trauma or emotions or a pathogen like Lyme disease, it can take a gene that was off and turn it on and make the problem even worse. So a pathogen like Lyme disease comes in, it then makes you sick because of the bacteria and probably a lot of the things that come along with it from a tick bite and other conditions that you've had that are opportunistic, but then your, your genes get expressed a certain way and compound and dogpile on. Is that an accurate assessment before I go on to my next question? I just wanna make sure I'm yes. summarizing that. Okay, so if that is the case, and Lyme and also, and I guess, well, before I go on even deeper, Lyme disease we know has a psychological impact, right? It, in some cases, it can create encephalitis, which is brain swelling, which then can create have downstream neurological and psychological effects. And just aside from that, the bacteria itself can cause psychological symptoms. So is the psychological impact, which is a direct result of the infection, an added factor that's triggering our genetics through epigenetics to turn on other things beyond Lyme disease and dogpile. Is that, is that another accurate deduction? I would say too, because at the same time, we know none of these things work in isolation, really. Like it's almost never just one, you know, one strain of Borrelia, even within one tick bite, you can have various pathogens in there and they all, you know, they all live in this, in our body, but then again, they live in the brain, they live in the joints, they live in all these different tissues and, it would be so much easier if that, if any of them were in isolation and, and they just aren't. And it's not even that the, that, that just even the Lyme pathogens are the same. It's just 
the viruses are there too and the bacteria and they all are in this happy community, right? And they usually eat the same kind of things like the sugar and they feed off of stress and sugar and things like that. And so it's, it's, I do talk about this a lot of basically, you know, we are a host for these organisms and unfortunately a lot of them get out of control. And then a lot of the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis feed their community, right? And feed them. And then it, it just gets, oh, this sounds so depressing. So it just gets worse, but you know, there are things that we can do. And that's why I think, you know, one thing that is so overlooked and I, I found most critical for myself, right? Was that sugar was probably one of the most impactful things for me in particular. And I know for a lot of people, for just feeling bad from Lyme in all the different ways, we, neurologically or joint pain, headaches, whatever it is for the person. But it's usually like the one thing that people won't, will not give up, even when they're this, you know, feeling. Rich, go ahead, Rich. I can see yeah. Rich jumping in. Back, 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 I, I do, I'm glad you guys are back to the sugar piece because I, I wanted to visit that with you. I um, I've shared with our listeners, I, I had never gotten um, COVID until three weeks ago. I, I had my first my first experience with COVID, and uh, there were a number of things that were were eye opening to me when I when I uh, suffered from the virus. One of which was, and I was sharing this with Matt offline. I started to crave sugar, and I was eating all kinds of sugary foods. Now I have a very clean diet. I eat very little sugar, and and I and I was saying to Matt, I'm eating all kinds of junk and all kinds of sugar, and I'm craving this. And he's like, Rich. You have to stop it. It's making you sicker, right? And we were having that kind of exchange. But I, you know, so my question to you is, why did my, why did this virus and I guess all these other microbes that I was dealing with once my immune system was overwhelmed with the, with the COVID put me in a position when I started to crave foods and I really struggled with not eating junk food when I never have those cravings? Because you had more of them in your body and that's what they want to eat and they were Basically, they drive your our cravings, right? I tell people, you know, mm -hmm. to be more gentle with themselves because when somebody's craving something, it's not your lack of willpower. It is the microbes inside you want and need food, and they are telling your brain that that is what they need or that you need. But it's them. That is so crazy. I mean, it's just it's so crazy to me that so many of the emotions that we have. And so many of the feelings that we have are really coming from the things that are not us, right? I mean, we know that there are more microbes in us than we have cells. We know we're more non-us than we are us. But what we don't do is we don't really appreciate how much of how we feel is being driven by the non-us that is now driving, you know, and, and again, using me as the example, these microbes were causing me to have this emotional reaction and, and, and these emotional desires that were only being satisfied by me eating sugar. Yeah, I mean, and that's again, which we know the huge, you know, correlation between the gut and the brain. But so that's why when people, you know, they're, they just, the cravings go from the gut where the, a lot of certain amount of microbes are obviously there in other places, right, all over our body. But at the same time, that direct signal then feels like to us, I should eat this you know, candy bar or something, whatever yeah. it is, but it's, it is crazy. And again, I, I know so many people get down on themselves, right. About sugar and foods and things like that. And again, it's, it's really not a lack of willpower. It's these 
I, I call them critters, make it a little nicer, but these pathogens are very powerful. They are very intelligent, right? You know, they make biofilm and things to hide them from things we give to kill them. Like it's, they're very strong and they have a big impact on, you know, what, what drives us as well, right? And so I just want people also to remember that and not feel so bad when they have these feelings too. On that sugar note though, Dr. Beckman, I, maybe it's just me, but if I have processed sugar, it, I feel it and I can feel it the next day. And I, so I very rarely will have, you know, any, uh, you know, I, it's very rare I have processed sugar. I can have a fruit smoothie with a ton of fruit. I mean, blueberries, strawberries, banana. I put almond, almond uh, milk in it. And then I put the uh, good amount of almond butter in it as well. And it's a big meal and all that sugar, I don't feel bad, but if I have processed sugar or sweet, it really hits me. So what are your thoughts on that? Is there, you know, we talked about this a lot, but why does, you know, why do some people respond differently to fake or processed sugar than natural sugar? And other people can't have any sugar at all, whether it's natural sugar from fruit or processed sugar. So I'm in the can't have any sugar at all camp, right? So I always, you know, and again, I grew up it just even in school, right? Honey is good for you. Maple syrup, now coconut sugar, like all these things. They do the same exact thing in my body that I feel in my joints or headaches and uh, pain within about 30 minutes as me having, you know, white sugar or something like that, which again, I haven't had that in forever. But I do think also, again, not to bring it back always to this, but when I look at the genetics, I'm very, very prone to having blood sugar issues. So I think just that coupled with, um, you know, having that susceptibility that this, and then having all of these different microbes with Lyme and whatnot in the body, that it's just, it's not a good recipe. There are definitely people that can have, you know, bananas and mangoes and watermelon and all the high sugar fruit, I think, because with the fiber, it's better. But again, you know, you get these you get everybody on the internet just so vocal about, you know, don't ever talk to a doctor if they say that you can't have as much sugar and fruit or, you know, as much fruit as you want because it's natural. And it's just, again, I always say, you know, someone with Lyme disease cannot do that, right? Like you can't have, you know, there's some people that follow some different people that have a lot of books and the amount of fruit and mangoes and bananas in their protocols is to me, if someone had Lyme, that is just probably a recipe for making them feel worse. Right. But again, you still have to have a case by case basis because some people can and do fine with that. But I don't think anybody does fine with processed sugar. And I still want people to be very cautious with honey and, you know, even some of the maple syrup and things because it, people tend to just overdo things in general, right? So you think though that sucks, for example, if we compare you and I, right? You think it's because when I have processed sugar, it creates inflammation, which makes me feel bad. But maybe in your situation, if you have natural, if you have a ton of fruit, it's creating blood sugar issues and a blood sugar spike, which is causing your symptoms. And I, I somehow am more tolerable to not have a blood sugar reaction to the fruit. Like, you know, what do you think is different between you and I from a genetic standpoint with your background, you know? Sure. So I think, so I guess what I would say actually to tweak what I said a little bit too, is I feel it there, but I also will feel, um, it's almost like, um, I think it's just candida. Like I think that a lot of people have a lot of, you know, and again, I had a more recent like mold and mold exposure. So then the candida was more, 
Um, and so any kind of sugar I feel actually on my skin very quickly, like itchiness. So that's more internal and not always like a blood sugar dip. I feel like to myself, sugar is kryptonite for like all the ailments, right? It just is not for me. Where some people that might be dairy or that could be heavy metals, right? It's just different how we all are. And I think that, again, that's why it's important to either work with someone who can identify these things and it doesn't have to mean testing, like it can be with questions uh, that we ask, right? But I feel like we all have certain things that our system, it, it just creates problems and it goes to some of our weak areas, right? So even different types of things that cause inflammation for me, they go to a headache or joint pain, but for somebody else, they go to digestive issues, right? Or dizziness. So it's just different, right? And we have sometimes a weak system and again, these microbes, that's why it's so interesting. I mean, to me that, you know, they just manifest in so many different systems for people. And again, which goes back to your definition of Lyme, it's never just one system, right? It's, it's never one sy system. It's never one symptom. It's never one pathogen. Like it's, it's everything. And that's why your definition is so fitting. I do believe. So it's a good one. So let's 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 pick on Rich a little bit more because now we just complimented him. So we got to give him a compliment sandwich here, pick on him a little bit. So Rich and I, we've had this debate. We, people that listen to this podcast probably know this story, but we both went on started tried chlorella two years ago. Dr. Rolls has it through his vital plan. And I love it. I went on, I did a chlorella, you know, kick for I don't know how long I did it. I went off it probably for a year, went back on it and Every, I just went back on it again a few weeks ago. And when I do chlorella, I'm now I'm doing, I, I don't know the dosing, but it's 40 tablets a day, which is the, the high end of what he, you know, he recommends. And at first I literally feel like my sinus is getting pulled out. Like when I first went on it and then I'd feel like I get like crazy tired. Like I felt all these weird things happening and then it levels out. And when it levels out, I know, okay, I can stop. And then I can go on, I can kind of let, you know, go back, go back to life. And then maybe in a couple of months, try it again. Right. Did you have, did you have a comment you had to make before I went on? I feel like I, Okay. So I, I, again, I'm taking 40 and, you know, maybe I had a little bit of, of, um, not to be too gross, but like loose stool at first, but then it, you know, it's good form again and everything else. But I still, I take a berberine. I take a lot of uh, gut herbs as well. And Rich does too. Rich takes all the gut herbs that I take and Rich will take chlorella. He has one capsule and I take that capsule, one tablet and I take 40 and he's in the bathroom for four hours straight and can't get out. So like, why are we so different? Right? Like what, what's going on in our bodies? Like, what is wrong with Rich? And, you know, everybody always defends him. There's nothing wrong with him. Everybody's different. We're all bio-individual. But I want to know, I want to know, Dr. Beckham, what is wrong with Rich? Why can he only tolerate one tablet of chlorella? And what, what do you think is going on in his body? Sure. So I, I do have one question. Sorry, real quick. So chlorella is super cold in Chinese medicine. So a lot of cold things will attack the digestive system. So I would, and again, I don't know, but I would wonder if you have more digestive weakness than, than you do. Meaning Rich has more than I do. Yeah. Sorry, what so, were you saying? I, I, I'm, I'm, are you being, are you asking me whether or not I have more digestive issues? I guess that's, I mean, if one capsule of chlorella either, you know, makes you feel like that way, then I would say either it's a metals issue, right? Or a, um, or the, it's, it's a very, very cold herb because it's from the ocean, right? And they, or it's, it, anyway, it's classified yep. as cold. And so, and it's an algae basically yes. a little bit. So um, again, there's a lot to go with that. So that is also more like uh, damp and cold in nature. And so that can 
not harm, but it can be too cold for a digestive system that has a weakness toward that. Well, I, I didn't think I had a digestive system weakness, but maybe I do, right? So Matt, Matt is always setting doctors up with the stories. So <laughs> I am. Careful when Matt is bringing this up because he, what, what he would do is he, you know, like he, he asks this to Dr. Kelly and what he does is he, he presupposes I have something wrong with me. And then, and then he, and then he says, well, doesn't Rich have something wrong with him? And he's got to <laughs> shut down every single time. Like Dr. Will said to him, Matt, there's nothing wrong. It's, you know, everybody's a Bible individual and Rich doesn't necessarily have everything wrong, but he's always trying to get somebody to, like he, he set up Dr. Jess with this, Dr. Kelly. With this. So you're, you're, you're not, I want you to know, Dr. Beckman, he's not being, he's not picking on you. He does it to everybody, but he keeps getting slapped in the face about this. Although, I don't know, maybe he's got a sympathetic audience with you. I had uh, a little win here, Rich. You have heavy metals and you have a bad, you have, you have a bad digestive system. That's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, so in general, this like the digestive system likes warm, cooked, nourishing foods, right? So algae, cold, those are, in a Chinese theory, not what we use when we're trying to like um, keep the stomach and spleen happy, if that makes sense. So there's a lot of people that you give them what, like aloe is also very cold, right? So again, there's certain people you give them that they will just have diarrhea like right away. So again, it just depends, but that's the thing too. And that's what drives me a little bit crazy about people just following this advice all in chat rooms and yep. everything is, and then yeah. they'll try high amounts of something, right? When you're trying something new, it's a good idea to try one capsule, right? Imagine if you took 40. Oh, I, yeah. Like, well, we, yeah. No, so Dr. Mike, I think you're bringing up a really important point that we should, we should focus on, which is we, we've seen folks in different groups um that are all doing the same thing at the same time right and that drives me crazy right uh because it it we are bio individuals with a whole different terrain and a whole different set of microbes that's in our system and how can every one of you be doing you know a you know a particular protocol all at the same time it's just impossible that it could be all working for you when you have that kind of diversity and it's another reason why I think we have to be careful about, you know, this whole concept of, you know, becoming your own doctor. You shouldn't become your own doctor. You should be, you should be the owner of your body working with a doctor and working with a practitioner so that you can figure out what the proper steps are that you should be, should be taking, right? But, you know, when you're all doing the same thing at the same time, in my view, that's a bad thing. That's a, that's a bad approach. And, and, and it's, it's probably going to work for none of you as opposed to all of you. Well, and that's like, you know, all of these extra modalities to help with detox pathways and everything between sauna, cold plunge, you know, um, ozone, all of these things, people then just jump right in. And that's why I think it's so critical to look at constitution, right? Because I would never prescribe, you know, something to one of my clients and then they go see a breathwork practitioner and they're like, you have to do cold plunging. And I'm like, she's in severe adrenal fatigue, mold toxicity and Lyme and, you know, has POTS. Like 100%, you should have never said do cold plunging, right? Like I don't, but they, because there's people see, seeking out answers from all these people. And this person is a breathwork specialist, not a doctor, not trained in anything, right? But because they are, in that arena, they think breath work, uh, sorry, you know, breath work I think is amazing, but again, cold plunging and all of that and cryo and whatever, and even saunas, it needs to be tailored to the individual. And even 
sauna has to be tailored temperature time you're in there and frequency per week right people go so extreme and most people honestly are over detoxing and they're staying in these herx reactions for so long i'm like you should yep. not be feeling this sick for so long you know that means we have to you know dial back and just reevaluate and then that's why you have to work with someone and adjust your protocol frequently i just want to say thank you because you just explained something i've always kind of known but couldn't express so you know when people and i and we've seen this in, in friends and and people coming on the podcast they go to a doctor they have a team of people but then their breathwork specialist or their health coach or their whomever it may be says oh you should go do this cold plunge or you should go do this really this really whatever and their practitioner is like no you have certain things that are huge red flags that make you more vulnerable to that modality but that person who's the breathwork professional, the health coach is kind of saying, well, that worked for other people. So it might work for you, but they don't have the knowledge that Dr. Ashley Beckman has. They don't have the, the knowledge that somebody who is completely well-rounded has to say that's really high risk to you. That's a really bad idea. And I really never knew how to articulate that. So thank you. I'm just kind of thinking out loud with you because that's, that's something I've been struggling with for a while. And I think that just was well said. So, um, and thank they're you not that. chronically ill, right? There's so many people that are in a lot of fields and their clients are not chronically ill with Lyme. I'll just use Lyme and mold toxicity. And if someone has both or one or the other, that is a whole nother group and category of client that again, multiple systems are impaired, neurological, digestive, they usually have a lot of pain as well, super, super depleted, and their constitution is run down. That is not the person that really should be jumping from all these modalities and then getting that advice from, you know, non-medical professionals, which is what's happening. Or the same, very even within the medical community or natural medical medical system, people are given, you know, these high, um, like very strong ozone treatments, just for example, and some clients that is so aggressive and sets them back for so long, because, you know, I keep prefacing with a lot of my clients, because I send, tend to have very sensitive ones of like, please explain to them that you might be one of the most sensitive people that they've seen and to not, you need a test dose, or you need not the regular treatment. And pretty much everyone always forgets right? And they don't say it because they're there. And that's the doctor's saying, this is the course of treatment. But I think that is where it's important for someone to be their own advocate and say, hey, I react to everything. What is what we can start with? And, you know, you might have to pay for an extra treatment because you just want to, you know, it's not going to be their full dose one. But I think that's way better because I've had so many clients get set back for months by doing just like the standard first ozone treatment that I really didn't want them to do in the first place, right? You know, so again, ozone can be amazing. I just mean it's constitution. Everyone has individual ways. Right. So, and I think this brings us sort of back to the mindset discussion. When 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 I interviewed uh, Dr. Tanya Dempsey, who I absolutely love, uh, we we talked we talked about um, her experience as a practitioner. And she was a primary care physician, um, and she went to a she went to a seminar that was given by Dr. Richard Horowitz. Mm -hmm. And after after she went to the Horowitz uh, seminar, uh, she approached Dr. Horowitz and said, "Hey, I think some of my patients in upstate New York yeah. um, probably have Lyme disease that I haven't diagnosed before." And 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 she gave a percentage, and he said, "Oh no, you have many many more patients who have Lyme disease." And she said that opened her eyes 
to seeing, as it turns out, a very large percentage of her patients had, had Lyme, but she, because she, her mindset didn't make Lyme available to her until after that change, she couldn't see the disease. Um, now she sees she's become one of the foremost experts in, in, in treating disease, but she couldn't even see it, right? So mindset is important, not just in the, in, in the perspective, for the perspective of the patient and what your mindset is and what impact the mind, your mindset is having on your search engine, finding what it is that you need to get better and your search engine impacting uh, whether you're going to be in fight or flight, but you also have to evaluate the mindset of your practitioner. Yep. And you have to make sure that the practitioners that you're working with have a mindset that allows them to see the full picture of what it is that they're dealing with and helping you to deal with and 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 not find people who don't have the proper mindset to give you the analysis that you need as a bio individual and just start, start running you over to doing things like cold plunges when they w- will actually not only help you, but will hurt you in many cases. Yeah. And I think that, you know, a lot of times too, it's, 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 um, you know, people need a team really, because we're not all specialists in all areas. And a lot of people that have Lyme are very sick in many ways, right? They probably need a cardiologist and they might need a neurologist. And again, it's more just to keep, you know, a variety of people in your arena and to help you and then to have somebody. And that's usually more where I come in in a certain piece is like, how does this work overall and you know a lot of my clients trust me to give them a bit more of like the full picture but then defer to specialists that are still very much needed um, on a kind of more western front but while we are taking care of things that we can do naturally and then also again like I because I look at them with that constitutional piece of like it does is this person more deficient or you know, do they have adrenal issues or thyroid, you know, this would not be the best modality, but it's, it's still even very different than looking at that from um, like the Western perspective. Yeah, I've evolved to that mentality as well, where I was first, obviously, like everybody else before getting sick, 100% Western, then I was 100% Eastern, you know, in alternative medicine. And now now I'm back in the middle, what you just described, right? We need a Dr. Ashley Beckman. Everybody, I think everybody needs somebody like you to kind of quarterback their care, who has that comprehensive, full circle, holistic approach and makes recommendations and guided and gives guidance based on the person and the high risks based on the bio individual, but also then can, you know, I'll say sub us out or contract us out to, you know, Western doctors, a cardiologist, a neurologist, uh, whatever, infectious disease, right? And I think that's how we're going to get the best care is when our doctors are working together and we they put their egos aside and don't say, I am the sole person who's going to get you better because- like you said earlier, I'm not an EDS specialist. I have my ideas on it, but I will refer you out to an EDS specialist if that's if that's the case and that's really a significant problem. That approach or that honesty is very much needed. And unfortunately, most doctors don't have that, right? So I think that's that's really a powerful approach to healing and partnering with doctors. But I don't want to forget to circle back to our discussion. And as much as I love teasing Rich about it, I want to kind of ask a more practical question about the binders now, right? So, you know, Rich obviously had issues with chlorella. I love taking binders. Like, so for example, I, I'll take glutathione and then I'll, I will love to go for, for an, you know, exercise and then take a binder and, I, and I'll drink a ton of fluid, right? And so I, f- I think it's a nice way to pull out the toxins out of my liver, mobilize them, but rather than having them recirculate, which a lot of us have issues with, they get recirculated and we continue to get more toxicity and more toxicity, that binder is going to mop it up and pull it out. So I think binders are a powerful tool for everybody, most, probably even healthy people. 
What kind of binder alternatives are there that are more of a nice broad binder that can help pull out heavy metals, mycotoxins, and just flush out our liver of these toxins as, you know, maybe the glutathione and the thing, NAC, et cetera, is helping us pull them out of the liver. We want to make sure we mop it up, you know? So what are some alternatives Rich can maybe try and get inspired from Dr. Beckman on this podcast? So I am a big, big, huge fan of binders actually. And so I, I use a lot of uh, cell core binders. I do use Quicksilver. I use Despio has like a very gentle binder that's more liquid, that's new. Um, more so than trying to find different binders like that, I actually just, well, I try to then maybe just have someone use like a pinch of something because some people, if they have a big reaction from a small amount, then you still, you know, it, a pinch is actually what they need, right? So. I try to utilize that um, because I think that the binders are actually necessary, especially if you're dealing with mold or pesticides and things like that um, and glyphosate. And I do believe that most of us need binders of some sort, probably on a daily basis, even if it's just kind of rotating things around. I don't always use the chlorella. I, I use a lot of the fulvic and humix a lot too. Um, but again, you can also, you know, I rotate. And again, it's based on the person. I do work with a lot of little kids. So we use different things. And, and then I do also really like that system of pushing things out and then mopping it up with the binder. So especially if you are implementing saunas or the same, if you're taking things at night, uh, really important because the gallbladder, like in Chinese medicine too, we have that organ clock. So you really also need to be asleep ideally by 10 because your gallbladder will start trying to process and deal with all the bile and all everything. So you need to be asleep by 11 to make sure that's happening. So it is a big thing that I do like to kind of, for someone to take their tudka if they're taking or some bitters and things like that for the gallbladder, and then also have their binder at night so that you're getting that process like kind of fine tuned in the evening for everything that you came across in the day. Well, the good news is there's a ton of bitters in the active enzymes, Rich. So you're being covered in that regard. But I still think you can do more. Uh, <laughs> but the the follow-up to that is that I think beyond it taking all of these, you know, products that we can buy from every every you know source you just mentioned, binders can be our food as well. A high fiber diet can help bind toxins as well, Dr. Beckman. Is that correct? So there are other ways naturally for our diet to do that. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, for a lot of people just eating a lot of the cruciferous vegetables, if your body can tolerate it is a really, really great way to also support the liver and, and then get, and get fiber to move a lot of toxins out. Again, I think it's important to just make sure and switch things up, right? Like I'm a huge fan of rotation. If that means food, it means supplements, it means binders. Like I, I, you know, just switch things up because your body does get used to them and even different companies because they're sourcing binders and, you know, even herbs and plants from different locations and different, you know, they're grown in different methods. It's just good to kind of keep your body on its toes and switch things up as long as it's really good quality. My final question, because we've had you for so long, and then Rich will conclude this with you. But my final question is is on the same note of this with diet. We had somebody just yesterday tag us on social media, and, and this has been powerful for me as well, stressing the importance of a high-protein diet for Lyme patients. And for me, my diet pre-Lyme, and one of my many flaws that I think led to my ultimate collapse was I had a high-carb diet, very low-protein diet, 
high sugar diet, but I just exercised like crazy. And I thought that was an okay lifestyle. It wasn't right. right. So now I've, I've adopted a more practical lifestyle and a more practical diet. And I have a very high protein diet throughout the day. But this individual is arguing that a high protein breakfast is really important to start off your day. So what are your thoughts on diet in general, specifically protein and the, the need of having protein for your Lyme patients and your chronic glial patients? And is there a time of day that it's important to get a high level of protein like, like morning? Yes. So I would say pretty much anyone that works with me, one of the first things I ask is to make sure that they're okay with adding in more protein. And that means meat in their diet, right? So I, I was vegan before, so I get the whole reasons for being vegan and everything, but anybody that wants to get, and I, sorry, I guess it's too broad. My theory is that pretty much most people, if they want to get really better and if they have chronic issues, they need more meat in their diet and they do need more protein. And definitely the first thing with breakfast is really, really critical that you have a high protein breakfast. And I would say, I don't think it's actually possible to eat all the protein that, that people suggest actually, right? It's, it's, I mean, if you actually kind of count it out and do the calculations, it's a bit impossible. I think, but also I'm, you know, 115 pound by two female. So I, it's even that it's like, I'm not going to eat four eggs for breakfast, but that's still like, that's kind of where it's going right now with the calculations. So I do think that people need to eat way more protein than what they are eating. And again, it's really critical that it is really great quality. I'm not saying eat, you know, junk grass, uh, you know, like all the conventional farmed meat. But I always tell clients this, and this is a Chinese medicine thing too, the fastest way to get better is actually incorporating more meat into your diet. It has the highest amount of chi. Um, and so that kind of correlates us to nutrients and energy. And so anyone that's chronically ill or fatigued, that is the main thing that I focus on. And I, I get a lot of pushback and then people feel bad. Do you know what I mean? At some point, and then they say, oh, I backed off the meat and I'm really tired again. And I was, you know, saying told you not to do that. You know what I mean? In a, in like just a way of like, it's good to see what happens, right? Of course you felt that way you backed off and now we're really tired again. So it's Too specific. Oh, sorry. No, it's just critical to me. And that's like one of my tenants of, of good health. And, you know, most people have all of this guilt around it. And I tell people, you know, that it's really critical. You're making these choices for your health. You're not making them exactly for your moral purposes, right? Like you're yep. so sick and you'll do anything that should include actually incorporating more good quality meat into your diet on a regular basis. I just want to get a little bit deeper on that. Why is meat so important and not eggs or beans and other sources of protein? Why are you stressing the importance of having an actual meat-based diet? And why is protein in the morning so important as well? So, I mean, first of all, the protein in the morning, you just need to start your body off with the best source of, again, this is that kind of like energy and chi. It has the most, meat has the most nutrients that will build back your energy. So for chronically ill people or just anybody, that is when you need, uh, that when you need to start your day with that is with a really good amount of protein. And again, as much as, you know, there are all these lovely debates about the protein and beans and nuts and things. I don't count that as protein. So when I'm talking to my clients about increasing protein, I'm actually, I'm talking about meat and 
this again, the red meat, this is Chinese medicine theory too. Red meat, red meat, lamb, all of those, they have more nutrients, they're more nutrient dense. So they actually, and they are considered warm food. And this is kind of where I was talking about, like when you're trying to build up someone who's deficient and cold and tired and fatigued, generally they need warming, cooked, very nutrient dense food. That tends to be food that is higher in pigment, which is like red or, you know, um, just pigmented food. And so red meat falls into that even more than white meat. Um, but still it is, again, this is Chinese theory, but meat has the most chi and energy building capabilities of any food source on, uh, in the whole, you know, on the planet. Dr. Bergman, that makes perfect sense because, you know, under the Chinese medicine theory, um, of course, I am a warm person, so I do well with warm foods. And Matt is a cold person, so he, of course, is going to do better with his with his cold Corella or whatever else he's taking from the sea. But uh, in all seriousness, I do want to um, uh, ask you to help us wind down and talk about how you're a different practitioner as a result of having Lyme disease yourself. You've been on a three-year journey. You've yeah. been able to go through a very powerful phase of recovering from this disease, but you now have insights that a person and a practitioner who did not have Lyme would be able to offer to their, to their clients and patients. So talk to us about how that part of your journey, although it sucked, was a really important part of what you now bring to the community. Well, and what I would say too is I probably had Lyme for almost 20 years. I just didn't know it. And so I kept you know, specializing in things that I thought were making me better because I was getting better. Basically, it's just like symptom wise, but then something new, right? Like mold exposure would kind of like knock me back down. And then you go in and dive deep into that, right? But I really did come across mold because so many of all my clients that came to me for autoimmune issues or Lyme mold was a huge piece, like and very significant. So as a practitioner, you start to see patterns. And when you see patterns, you know, toxins and exposures, then you dive deeper. And again, it's definitely nothing. It's definitely something that I really wish that I had even said 20 years ago, I would never specialize in Lyme. And I'm not saying that I do. It's just that so many of my clients all have it, especially because I do specialize in mold and pretty much, you know, most people, a lot of people with mold exposure, there's, there's a big correlation with Lyme. So I would say, you know, there is a big benefit to working with somebody who has gone through the same types of things that you have, which is why I tend to have um, also a big group of, of thyroid clients because I went through that as well. And so it just makes it, I think, for probably more relatable. And then again, I, you know, you just have a different experience when you've gone through it yourself or maybe even a family member too, but it's, it's, yeah, definitely again, part of my history. And because I did all so much research on my own outside of how I was medically trained, because most of us are not trained, you know, initially on these things, you have to go and seek out a lot of extra training and, and work with people to see what's, what's actually working versus, you know, the plethora of protocols out there. Right. And, and as a patient yourself, you understood the importance of trial and error. You understood what signals suggested to you that you should move on from a protocol and what it was working and how long it was working for you. And you just wouldn't have that ability to assist your uh, your patients and clients with um, with having those tools if you hadn't gone through it yourself. 
Right. And I had, you know, the biggest thing I guess I would say is I did have that experience of just knowing something was wrong or knowing that I was very different and reacted a lot more to things than most people and that I needed different, you know, I needed a different protocol or treatment. And again, I was never really in the Western medicine model and, and I hadn't been because when I first reached out to my doctor initially, which is what happened, I, I woke up one day and I, I had so much an, uh, ankle pain and foot pain and wrist pain that I couldn't really walk well. And that was the, you know, over like probably 18 years ago. And she just, so I went to the doctor and she was sweet and kind. So I didn't have that, but she just said, you know, we don't know what this is. Probably something will show up in 10 or 15 years, some sort of autoimmune issue. And you know, and I asked for some testing, but I, all I got was a celiac test. But to me, that was Lyme back then because it's still the same pain that I can get when something like that happens. And again, I just hear that's pretty much everyone's same story, right? Is that they have been searching. Again, my doctor was not mean to me or unkind, but she just said she was, you know, in a much better place. She said, well, I don't know, but really there's nothing you can do. And I just said, that's ridiculous. Like, I, you know, and that's where then I started looking into the inflammatory foods, right? Because it just seemed like I had some weird arthritis at 25 that was unusual. But there was no mention of Lyme. Why would it be, right, at that point? Right, and, 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 I, and I think your path is, very, is, is a very common path, right? I don't want to pay Matt Sabatello any compliments tonight because that would just... It makes it difficult for me to do that. But, you know, one of the things that Matt has done with many, many of our guests is to ask them what types of um, modalities they were using to make themselves feel better before they were diagnosed with Lyme disease, because the path really is a long path. And in most cases, just like you, you have Lyme for 10, 20, 30 years before you ultimately become chronically ill and you and you and you're able to get a diagnosis and you are just organically taking steps to try to find modalities that will help you to feel better and, and, and get you back into this sort of place of balance where you're not, um, you're not uh, struggling. Right. But that is, that, that seems to be the path. And then we have this event, whether it be, whether it be coming in contact with mold or, or, or having some kind of an emotional trauma or something like that, that ultimately puts us in a position where, you know, our immune system is now uh, overwhelmed and not able to manage this. And then, you know, then we, then we, then we have to take a different approach. Right. So. Yeah. And I, that's so for me at that point, um, I had deduced gluten and dairy as being what would trigger pain or migraines. And, you know, again, it was, it was significant. Like I was the migraines I had where I would, I left work in a wheelchair vomiting because my migraine was the migraine I had you know, if I ate gluten, that's what would happen. And so it's not like it was just a little bit, right? But then it didn't, didn't, it manifested to me, you know, it was a few types of food and it would show up either as that or this joint pain. And I had joint pain within 30 minutes of eating gluten. So to me, for 15 years, I thought this is gluten, this is a gluten and dairy problem, like, and we're good, right? I just had to stay away. And then I realized it was also sugar. But then, you know, then you start to dig and go, why do you have these sensitivities, right? Like there's, there are things underneath that you're feeding and those are actually the bigger picture, right? And so, but I really did not, didn't cross my mind that it would be one. This has really been a fascinating conversation. We could keep you for another two hours. 
but it wouldn't be fair to you and your family to keep you uh, keep you any longer. So um, I, I know many folks on in our community are going to want to work with you. I don't know if you have the the bandwidth to take on uh, additional um, folks, and if you do, can you uh, share with our community how they can get in touch with you and what are the different ways they could work with you? Sure. So um, I'm most active on Instagram, Dr. Ashley Beckman, or my website is drashley.com. And that's just D-R-A-S-H-L-E-Y.com. And I, I do have some space left in my private practice. And Great. I usually start people again with a foundational program, even people that have been through many years. So again, we look at those some of those labs that we spoke about. Um, but yeah, I also offer a complimentary 15 minute discovery call and that can be booked easily through Instagram um, or my website and then have an amazing office manager who can answer all kinds of questions too. So yeah, please reach out. And again, you know, I think the biggest thing is it's also really important when you do look for some sort of practitioner, you know, you will be working with them for a while. And so it's important to kind of just to have a good rapport and feel like you're on a similar page and know that, you know, someone's listening to you. And then again, if, if it's not something that I've worked with or it's not really my specialty, I do have friends, you know, a lot of us, a lot of all my friends have mold in mind too. We're all friends, we're all practitioners and it's all, you know, we're kind of like a, a good family of people. Because again, we've been through something similar even though it's manifested for us all a little bit differently. Dr. Beckman, thank you for taking so much time out of your really busy schedule to share so much of your brilliance with uh, the folks here at Tech Bootcamp. Thank you very much. Of course, it's my pleasure.